Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Friday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. We'll begin with this. Immediately after passing both the Senate and House, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed an overhaul of the state's election system into law. SB 202 also secures all ballot drop boxes around the clock, speeds up processing to ensure quicker election results, requires security paper to allow for authentication of ballots, and allows the bipartisan state election board to have more oversight over counties who fail to follow state election law. Nearly 100 pages, the law adds an identification requirement for absentee voting and can allow state takeovers of county elections management. It expands early voting in some counties and bans organizations or anyone from handing out food or drinks to voters waiting in line at polling locations. Now, Governor Kemp signed this legislation behind closed doors, surrounded by Republican supporters, including House Speaker David Ralston. However, meanwhile, outside of Kemp's office, Democratic Representative Park Cannon tried to enter to witness the signing and was knocking on the door asking to be let in. However, officers with the Georgia State Patrol told Representative Cannon she couldn't enter, and then Cannon was arrested. Our governor is signing a bill that affects all Georgians, and you're going to arrest an elected representative. Why does the governor have more power than than a representative? Why are you arresting her? That's what I'm Stop arresting her. Why are you arresting her? Cite the violation. Cite the code. What is she in violation of? I want you to cite the code. Cite the code. Cite it. The video footage shows Cannon being dragged out of the Capitol and placed into a state patrol car. Representative Cannon was released from jail later last night after being charged with willful obstruction of law enforcement officers and preventing or disrupting General Assembly meetings. Joining me to discuss all of this is Andrea Young, Executive Director of the ACLU of Georgia. Director Young, thanks for taking time. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thank you uh, for discussing these very important issues. Good to be with you, Rose. Well, before we get to Governor Kemp signing the bill into law, your reaction to Representative Cannon's arrest? You know, Rose, we have seen uh, a very aggressive stance taken towards Black women members of the legislature. Um, You know, it's clear that a, you know, what, five foot zero Black woman is seen as more of a threat than a white man with a gun in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, And so uh, it is, you know, it's really deeply, deeply troubling. We saw this happen to our, now our Congresswoman, Nakima Williams. Uh, there have been other instances where, um, you know, just 
vocalizing by uh, members of the legislature who are black and especially black women has mm-hmm. been dealt with a great deal of aggression. So, you know, it's deeply disturbing and, you know, the disrespect um, that was shown to an elected representative uh, of the people uh, is, is very disturbing and, 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 and it's certainly a pattern. And we should know Closer Look reached out to Speaker Austin's office. We were told he was not available today. We've also reached out to Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, and we've always reached out to Governor Brian Kemp, but he declines to appear on the show. Now, on to the signing of Senate Bill 202. Uh, after Governor mm-hmm. Kemp's signing, you released an opinion piece. I want to read part of it. In quote, you write, mm-hmm. Voting without irony or awareness 56 years after Dr. Martin Luther King issued his triumphant speech at the close of the march from Selma to Montgomery, the Georgia General Assembly passed Senate Bill 202, a bill to undermine democracy and majority rule in Georgia. Your thoughts on the bill, which is now yeah. law. Right. I, I, you know, this, we first saw this bill rose about a week ago, uh, a massive overhaul of the code in Georgia, uh, a massive power grab by the legislature, uh, basically deposing the elected secretary of state from his role as chair of the state election board, uh, setting up provisions that would allow for a takeover of counties and Fulton County being named uh, in the deliberations. Uh, we also have them codifying provisions that we successfully challenged. There were 300,000 voters who were challenged in the last days uh, of this U.S. Senate runoff. Uh, They essentially codified that process and said it is fine that any voter can challenge any number of voters uh, and that and trigger uh, a hearing that could prevent that person from being able to vote unless they show up and justify, you know, their uh, ability to be on the roll. So, you know, it's it's just it's just a massive power grab centralizing authority in what is based on the voters is now a minority party in Georgia. Of course, Senate Bill 202 was among dozens, I mean, dozens of Republican-backed measures introduced this legislative session. Through your lens, is this solely in response to losing the two Senate seats here in Georgia and, of course, Georgia going to President Joe Biden? Mm-hmm. Um, it is that, but we see that this is a national movement. It is, it is, uh, as if sort of one political party uh, in our country has become the party of voter suppression. Uh, So 43 states, you see these kind of regressive laws being passed. uh, And I suppose that is in response uh, to, but it even happened in states where Biden was, did not prevail and Mm -hmm. where Republicans maintain control of the state and, uh, and, and federal offices. So you know, it is. It, it's just the. Um, but I think here, you know, certainly this kind of breathtaking uh, activity, uh, and of course, it's not popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, otherwise, the governor would have signed it in the rotunda, uh, you know, in public view of the media and so forth. Uh, but the secrecy with which uh, it was signed, and I think the picture, the photograph, speaks volumes because that photograph does not look like Georgia. Georgia is 47% people of color. And that is a photograph of white men 
signing into law provisions that will make it more difficult for people of color, younger people, people with disabilities, you know, uh, to, to participate in our democracy. I believe one lawsuit has already been filed. What's the next step for the ACLU of Georgia? Well, the ACLU uh, has been analyzing these bills from the very beginning, uh, and we are, you know, in conversations, looking at our options and looking at the strongest possible arguments. Uh, I think one of the what this act, action yesterday demonstrates uh, is that Shelby v. Holder was wrongly decided, mm-hmm. uh, and the decision of the Supreme Court to to, to eliminate the preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act was done either intentionally, either willfully or out of naivete, uh, you know, believing that somehow there was um, not this motive uh, in the Southern states to continue to suppress the votes of people of color. Had that not been gutted, had that part of the Civil Rights Voting Act not been gutted, then you you say what we've been experiencing, not here in Georgia, but throughout the nation, none of these measures would have even been introduced because they would have needed some type of preclearance or approval. I think that, the, yeah, I think it would have been far less likely that they were introduced uh, because of the knowledge of the preclearance provisions. And now with, uh, you know, a President Biden that is interested in, import- in actually expanding access to the ballot. Um, rather than restricting it. Is that enough to challenge this law that it's unconstitutional, you think? Well, there are some, you know, there is, we still have a Voting Rights Act, you know, Mm -hmm. we, but it does require then that you go through the full process of litigation. And so those are the options that we are looking at, the particular uh, provisions um, that we believe can be challenged under, uh, under the Voting Rights Act as it, that as it currently remains. As you wrap up, you are often referred to as, whether you like it or not, a daughter of the civil rights movement. Your father, obviously, Ambassador Andy Young, being part of that, being part of Dr. King's inner circle. Have you talked yeah. to him about all this? What has he said? He's seen yeah. so he's seen so much of this in the last six decades. Yeah. Well, you know, the he is he is uh, always an, the optimist um, that believes you know and we, there has been some indication of this that the more they try to suppress the vote the more they really um, infuriate people and people are even more determined to cast ballots and so that's certainly um, you know one of the things we will be pursuing but you know Rose I'm tired of people having to go jump these who people in Georgia took their Christmas vacation and knocked on doors and helped people get to the polls. And so, you know, 5 million people voted. It was an enormous amount of work for people in all 159 counties to make that happen in November. And I'm just tired of people having to take heroic efforts just to participate as full citizens in this democracy. And that's what we're working. Voting should be easy. You know, it was actually it was delightful to fill out an absentee ballot and take it to the Dropbox at the app at the Auburn Avenue Research Library. That Dropbox was in, a, in front of a public building. It had a 24 hour camera on it. Now they're saying, no, it has to be inside of a polling place. Um, and so this is just it's just a slap in the face to the, all the Georgians, all the volunteers that made this successful election possible. Uh, and this is not popular with Georgians. 
Uh, and you know, we're going to continue to work to fight to reverse these measures. We're going to educate voters on how to accommodate uh, the law as it stands, but we're going to continue to fight for the reversal. Andrea Young, Executive Director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Georgia, or as we plain plain folks say, ACLU of Georgia. Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. And now on to the other big news here in the South. Firefighters and other first responders are still checking on folks after a wave of powerful storms and tornadoes swept across the South last night, including West Georgia. Now, we do know that so far there's been one death in Coweta County and at least five deaths and many injuries reported over in Alabama. Shifting now to the latest news regarding the coronavirus, public health officials are voicing concerns the U.S. could soon see another wave in new COVID-19 cases. According to data from Johns Hopkins University, the seven-day average of new cases is actually up nearly 10 percent this past week, and more than 1,100 new cases were reported in Georgia just yesterday. This brings Georgia's total number of new cases confirmed since last March. Here are your numbers. 846,745 coronavirus cases, 16,336 Georgians have died due to the virus, and the total number of hospitalizations, 58,304 in the last year. A lot has happened this week as it relates to the coronavirus in Georgia. So earlier, we do what we always do. We called up our WABE health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead for a recap. Sam, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Hey, Rose. Good as always to be with you. Well, Sam, let's begin with the latest. This week uh, marked an important milestone. All Georgians 16 years of age and older are now officially eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine. First things first, what do folks need to know about the process for signing up to receive a vaccine? Yeah, so even though eligibility has now expanded, um, it's not like signing up has gotten any simpler. So there are still a lot of different places that people can look for appointments. So say they're looking for an appointment at one of these mass vaccination sites being run by the Georgia Emergency Management Agency. The website to sign up for those is Mm myvaccinegeorgia.com. That's only one place people could look, though. The Georgia Department of Public Health on their website, dph.georgia.gov, also has a way for you to sign up for appointments at public health departments. The CDC also has a site that they push people to, that's vaccinefinder.org. That's kind of a search tool that will say direct you to retail pharmacies that might have doses. So there are lots of different places for people to sign up. And I think that's one of the challenges here, even though eligibility has expanded, it's not necessarily gotten any simpler to to find a dose. And Sam, do we know if by county you can also go online for, for example, Fulton County's Department of Health or DeKalb? So local um, health districts is the way that I've seen it broken down. So, for example, the Gwinnett County Public Health Department also serves Newton and Rockdale counties. So you can go to their website and say find shots there too. So that's another layer, another place that people can look. And Sam, we know that Governor Kemp had been hinting for some time that there was a goal to make more Georgians eligible for vaccinations for a while. But did you expect it to come so soon? I actually did not. The governor early said that he had been looking at early April 
as the time when Georgia might potentially be able to open up vaccination to everyone. Of course, it's not early April, it's before then. So um, for me, this was earlier than I expected. And even what we were hearing from the governor, it seems to be earlier than he was thinking too. Also because now they're getting more of the vaccines from the government? I think that's part of it, Rose. You know, Governor Kemp over these last few weeks has said that the supply of doses the state is getting from the feds has remained steady and has even been growing a little bit. I think the other part of this is the real lack of demand that we've seen in some parts of the state, mainly rural Georgia, for this vaccine. Now, Governor Kemp has said since the start of the rollout in Georgia, we can remember even back in December, there were parts of the state where there was just not demand for vaccination. Um, It might be crazy to hear in Metro Atlanta where demand has been so high, but that's an issue that's persisted. And, And Governor Kemp said that is part of the reason why the state is opening up vaccines to everybody. Um, because he wants to keep demand high. He doesn't want, he says, vaccine doses sitting in freezers. And and that really seems to be a big reason for this move. We're going to talk to some Georgia State University researchers about how states, other states, uh, compare to Georgia in terms of their COVID-19 vaccine distribution plan. Uh, But Georgia's plan, how would you assess it? And has it changed much from when all this began, when the vaccines, when it was announced they were going to be available? Well, A notable change is the governor a few weeks ago got rid of this idea of phases. People might remember early on there was phase 1A and then phase 1A plus. And there was this big question of when are we going to move to phase 1B and even into phase 2. That has kind of vanished at this point with the state opening up doses to everybody. Something else the state seems to be getting a little better at is moving doses to where there is demand. The governor said this week, that the state was planning on allocating about 70% of the state's doses to Metro Atlanta and North Georgia, because that's simply where the demand is. And Hmm. I think part of what has challenged the state so far is that this demand has been so unequal, that we do have, you know, Metro Atlanta seeing such high demand for these vaccines and that not necessarily being the case in other parts of the state. 70%. Wow. It's a big number. And I think it really speaks to the divide that we've seen when it comes to Metro Atlanta and the rest of the state. Just this week, we had the Georgia Emergency Management Agency announce that they were closing their drive up mass vaccination site in Albany. Um, The mass vaccination site that agency is running out in Columbus, Georgia, which is not a small city. Um, mm-hmm. has moved moved at some point this week to walk-in appointments because they weren't getting enough appointments. And so I think that's going to be a challenge down the road. It is because of that low demand that the state really has been able to open up vaccination to everybody. But I wonder about the large swaths of the state that just aren't interested mm-hmm. in getting vaccinated and what that means for our ability to really snuff out this pandemic down the road. Sam, any idea, whether from Governor Kemp or any of the state public health officials, when Children, if, if the parents want to, if children will be eligible for vaccination. Well, they really aren't going to be the first ones to make that call. Hmm. Federal regulators will first have to authorize COVID-19 vaccines for younger populations, and that will still take time. At this point, the shot from Pfizer has been authorized for people 16 and older, and the two shots from Moderna and the one-shot dose from Johnson & Johnson, those have been authorized for people 18 and older. So, 
At this point, if you're younger than 16, there is not a vaccine that's been authorized for you. Um, clinical trials have started for these younger populations, but those will need to play out and the regulatory process will have to happen before states like Georgia even have the option to say people younger than 16 are eligible. Well, let's move from the vaccine to the current trends, I guess, here in Georgia. Now, Dr. Rochelle Walensky from the CDC noted that the seven-day average of new cases is on the rise in more than half of the states. She said this this week. Any idea what's behind this surge? I was watching this press conference when Dr. Walensky mentioned that there are a few reasons behind this. First, these variants that we've been hearing about for some time, they are here in the country and many of them are more transmissible. So that's part of what Dr. Walensky says is the issue here. Um, The other issue is we've started to see states relax public health rules. Um, Texas notably is in the process of rolling back their public health measures like masks. I saw this week that Indiana has announced that they're going to be pretty soon sunsetting their mask mandate. So states taking measures like that are something to look at here too, because what that does, Rose, is it sends the signal to the public that they can stop doing things like wearing masks and avoiding gatherings. Um, Dr. Walensky has said again and again and again that where the pandemic goes from here is up to all of us. So if people stop following this guidance, that potentially is going to have implications for the pandemic. Now, Sam, what do we know about new cases here and the rate of hospitalizations and or deaths here in Georgia? It is important to note, Rose, that everything is looking better. From this peak that we saw in mid-January, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths in Georgia are all down, right? That's great news. I think the real question is where things go from here. And this gets to what I just said. We all are responsible for controlling where the pandemic goes in the state. If in the next month, Governor Kemp decides to do away with public health guidelines, that's potentially going to have an impact. If people get a little bit more lax about wearing masks and avoiding going to gatherings, that's going to have a big impact. The way I think about it, Rose, is um, Dr. Anthony Fauci said at one of these White House briefings this week, um, it's not like we're turning a corner. It's like we're at a corner. And it's up to all of us to decide, do we go around that corner and potentially enter a new, better phase in the pandemic? Um, or do we make the wrong decisions um, and, and move in the, in the opposite direction? Well, and speaking of moving in some direction, President Joe Biden has said we may be slightly closer to a, quote, new normal come July 4th. What do you hear from the public health officials that you, you know, stay on top of, that you have these regular conversations with? You know, Rose, I think there is some space for optimism, even though there's not a ton of agreement about you know, the calendar date at which we might all look around us and be living in a post-pandemic world, right? Um, Dr. Carlos Dorio, who has been on your show many times, who I've spoken with many times, uses this analogy of a faucet, that things getting better, it's going to be like turning off a faucet where, you know, it's going to go from a steady flow to a slower flow to a trickle, as opposed to things turning a light switch, right? It's not like we're going to wake up one day and things are automatically going to be different. Um, And I think that July 4th, sure, things will start to look a little bit more normal. You know, I know, Rose, that um, my family, people in my social group, more of them are vaccinated now than were 
a month ago. And I think if that pace continues, I can see my world starting to change over the summer. But I do think until we get enough of the general population vaccinated, we're still going to have little bubbles, right? It's still not going to be safe for us to say, go to concerts or sporting events with tens of thousands of people. Um, But is it going to be safer to do a cookout with friends and family if everyone in that circle is vaccinated? Potentially, right? So I think it depends on your perspective. Are you zooming in really closely and saying for your social group, things will be back to normal? Or is this is it this larger perspective of as a country, are things going to be back to normal? I think the answer, um, I think the timeline for those are, are, are very different. WABE's health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam Whitehead, as always. Sam, thanks for taking the time to join us and giving us the latest update on all of this. We really appreciate it. Thank you all. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. According to the National Park Service, the Mosley Park Historic District is, quote, a typical early 20th century residential neighborhood located approximately three miles west of downtown Atlanta. It goes on to say the community is named after the original landowner, landowner, Dr. Hiram Mosley, whose heirs inherited the land after his death in 1902. But now there's a little bit of controversy kind of sort of there's a community division as whether or not the name should be changed why well keep listening keep listening to me joining me now to talk all about this is james hicks he's president of mosley of the mosley park neighborhood association and avion seals the chair of the name change committee james and avion thank you both for taking the time i really appreciate it thank you for having us all right james let me start with you james uh Tell our listeners who may not be familiar with Mosley Park and the community and what it means to you personally. Uh, it, it means everything to me. I'm, my family is from the metro Atlanta area. So when I was looking to find a place to eventually grow my own family with my wife, I definitely looked at Mosley Park as a place that I wanted to do that. And I think the, uh, what I enjoy most about it is just that sense of community that you get when you're here from all of the neighbors that are around. Like you can go to your neighbor and ask for help. And even if you don't ask for it, sometimes they're there to lend a helping hand. All right. Avion, what about you? What is it about this neighborhood and this community that you like? Uh, for me, it's more centered around the uh, the culture and the history around the community. Um, I moved uh, to Atlanta roughly about 15 years ago. And just like everyone here, I've seen a lot of change happen. Um, so the history is something that's very dear to me. Avion, let me stay with you because, as you all, both of you know, uh, there's a lot happening in Atlanta communities, uh, new development. Uh, depending on whom you ask, some appreciate it, others have concerns. As it relates to Mosley Park and what's happening in your area, uh, you see the changes for the good. You have some concerns. 
Yeah, well, I, I think um, that, that we're seeing a lot of change, and the change is definitely for the good. Um, the only concern that I would have would just be um, just throughout the process of gentrification, depending on uh, who you ask, around three or four of the four steps uh, involves displacement and erasure. So my biggest thing is just to ensure that that <clears throat> as Atlantans and as a resident of the West Side, that we're, we're, we're keeping the neighborhood and we're keeping the West Side true to its original roots. James, what about you? What concerns you have? A very similar concern is making sure that um, the people who have been here for and um, who currently live here are still able to stay here, whether it's through different programs that are coming up, but just making sure they're not forced out through the gentrification process. Mm -hmm. James, let's talk about then what everyone else is talking about, and that is with the name Mosley. Now, as I mentioned, um, it's not actually named after Dr. Hiram Mosley. It's his family, his heirs that inherited this, the, the, the neighborhood, the property, the land, correct? Uh, that is my understanding. So he passed and um, after he passed, essentially the plot that where the park is now, which is about 24, 27 acres, mm -hmm. was his actual, essentially the mansion that was there at the time. Um was asked to be turned into a park and the the family essentially accommodated that and it was turned into an all-white park in I believe 1922 mm -hmm. and then the neighborhood where he had a lot of land was kind of changed at the same time from my understanding. And what we know about Dr. Hiram Mosley was that he was a confederate veteran and an inventor um, I guess a manufacturer of this famous lemon elixir that was sold in drugstores apparently all over the country. Um, do you have an issue with the name or with his name being associated with that because of whatever reason you're about to tell me <laughs> um i personally uh am not immediately offended by it just because of when i think of mosley park i don't immediately think of hiram mosley because that's not the way i associate the park i associate the park with the history of um of it changing from an all-white park to an all black park after the neighborhood switched. I think about all of the um, civil rights leaders who lived in Mosley Park and how that culture is still um, being uplifted by the people who still live here today. And so for me personally, um, as I think about those things and start thinking about how I can and the neighborhood can build off of those things, whether it's through our education committee, whether it's through helping get our pedestrian safety under control within the neighborhood currently. James, what about you? Oh, that was James talking. I'm sorry, I mean, Avion, my apologies. <laughs> Avion, what about you? Uh, no worries. Um, yeah, in terms of what that name means to me, um, I, it represents oppression to me when I hear when I hear the name uh, Mosley and, and, and its ties to the Confederacy um, as a black person in America um, and as just as a global citizen. Um, uh, as a black person, there's no one or nowhere else on earth that people are subject to live under the conditions of their oppressors. So to me, it's it's something that's very uncomfortable for me. Um, we have a lot of signs that, you know, new residents come in and, and, and they buy signs to put on their homes. And for me, it was something that I, that I opted out to do because I couldn't fathom walking home to my new home or walking up to my new home and, 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 and seeing the name of a Confederate soldier on my home. So you want the name of the park changed and then that would give a, maybe a whole new name to the community, to the neighborhood. Is that what you would like and your supporters? Yeah, well, 
Right. Well, my, my, yeah, for, for me personally, um, I, I would love to see the name of the park change. I would love to see it change to um, uh, Reverend uh, Weatherspool, who was the first black person to move into the neighborhood in 1948. Um, I would love to see it named after a black woman. We don't have, uh, we, we have tons of underrepresentation of, of black women um, when it comes to not only in Atlanta, just throughout the civil rights era. Um, yeah. James, you are president of the Mosley Park Neighborhood Association. What has the conversation been regarding what Avion and his committee, what they want? How are you all, what's the discussion been like? So the discussion, I think, has been very positive. The, the way that we approach all of our committees, whether it's transportation, education, is the person who kind of, usually there's a person who spearheads it. Mm-hmm. And then we go with the majority rule. So uh, during the initial conversation we started talking about why essentially the change, which everyone essentially agreed to, that is a reason to change the name. So what would it possibly be? So we started coming up with um, names that it would be changed to. And so the main uh, piece that I've been trying to make sure is that within our committee meetings and neighborhood meetings, we typically have between um, five to up to 20, 40 people. And that doesn't represent the entire community. Mm -hmm. So, our next steps that we were starting to talk about were how do we get essentially a survey or a voice to everyone in the community yeah. so that when we go about changing the name, if that's the direction we want to go, we have everyone communicating uh, to it. And if, and we just go with the direction of the community as a whole. So how are you going to do that? How are you going to survey the community? So the way that we've done it in the past, um, and this is the part that we haven't quite worked out the logistics of, but whether it was, the community has done different things with voting in the last election. We literally just come up with either a pamphlet or a quick serve, a uh, quick thing to say, here's a one page, uh, essentially a document people can mm-hmm. view, vote on how they want to go about it and go from there. We do have an email listserv as well and a Facebook page, but that doesn't necessarily reach everyone. So anytime we're trying to get to everyone, we usually have to do in concert with our um, social media and electronic the door-to-door, uh, which takes a little bit more time, but is definitely something that in this case we would have to do in order to start taking the next steps. James, what's your re- response to someone who says, listen, this has been around for decades. You know, Mosley Park, it has its own identity, its own culture, regardless of who the name bears from. And that changing that would, in a sense, erase some identity for so many legacy residents as well which and avion you can answer that question too um so for me uh i think that is a concern but in atlanta and i think in the united states in general we love changing names like if you look at the main street that runs through mosley cart it's currently martin luther king boulevard it was previously hunter hill before that it was battle hill um and it was Mosley Park Drive at one time. So that's four different names since we've been naming streets. So um, within the last hundred years. So it's, we love naming names, uh, changing names. And while it does have some disconnection, it doesn't change what's going on in that area. You just have to, and that's one of the things we've talked about in community meetings is how can we make sure that we're elevating what we want as a community to be known for with possibly changing the name so that while yes you may not necessarily you may have to do multiple checks to go okay if we name it to 
Witherspoon, like Avion just mentioned, mm-hmm. okay, it was previously named Mosley Park, and maybe you have to research Mosley Park in order to get like a deeper history. Um, but that's something that I think is a community we would try to do through uh, part of the name. But I, because we're in Atlanta, we change names so often. I, it is a concern, but I wouldn't necessarily think that would stop us if the majority of our community wanted to do so. Avion, I'll give you the last word on this as we wrap up. Uh, can you understand folks that feel that changing the name changes the the culture and the identity of this neighborhood? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I just the, the thing that I would say to those people is that we're not trying to rewrite history. I think we're trying to evolve and move forward with history. Um, and, 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 and some of the things that are blaring and that are in our face are um, the gentrification aspect that the neighborhood is changing very fast. We know that homeownership is one of the fastest way that black people acquire wealth. Um, so as long as we can keep that and ensure that we we're not displacing anyone and ensure that the, the erasure, um, the culture erasure that, that traditionally happens during gentrification is not taking place. And that would be, that would be my, my, my final word on that. All right. Avion Seals, the chair of the name change committee and also James Hicks president of Mosley Park Neighborhood Association. Thank you both for taking the time. When y'all come up with what seems to be a solution, come on back and let's talk about it. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for having us. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Speaking of Mosley Park, how about this? When first revealed, Atlanta's Beltline was called an an ambitious project, a 22-mile multi-use loop connecting the city of Atlanta via trails, pathways, and all other sorts. Also, the idea of light rail was envisioned. Fast forward, it's 2021. Yes, a lot has been completed regarding the Beltline, but there's still more to to be done. And there are some various socioeconomic issues tied in as well, housing, transit and mobility, and of course, jobs. Now, you might remember back way, what was it, two years ago, it seems like a long time ago, for our award-winning series, Gridlock, What's Moving Atlanta, I caught up with then newly named Beltline President and CEO Clyde Higgs on a portion that was still under construction. This was way back behind the Ansley Golf Course overlooking I-85. Transit is absolutely important to the Beltline reaching the full vision of what we're supposed to do. And so we got to remind people that that's important. And that also fits into the affordability discussion that we're having as well. So what if you have the opportunity to pull a vehicle expense out of someone's household because they can access transit along the Beltline within the, the full city of Atlanta? And so that's important to us. We'll see if it still is. How close is all of this to being completed by 2030, the initial projected date? And how's the funding revenue? Well, Clyde Higgs joins me again, this time via Zoom, for a conversation about a new measure that just approved by the Atlanta City Council. So we'll talk about all of that. Clyde Higgs, welcome. Good to see you again. It's been a couple of years. Can you believe it? It's been two years. Wow. Yeah, time flies. Time flies. Uh, Good to be with you again. Let's, different circumstance, yeah. different circumstance, but uh, but good to be with you. Well, since the time that you've been on board here, um, how do you feel about the progress that's been made so far? And let's just get this out of the way. 2030, is that still the projected date for this belt line to be completed? 
it, it is. It absolutely is. So I will just tell you how I feel. You know, honestly, when you think about the, the Beltline project, it, it really is a collection of individuals and, and organizations within the city of Atlanta to really help advance this project forward. And what I've seen over the last two years or so since I've been in this, uh, this role is just, again, community stepping up, making sure their voice is heard and helping us to advance this, this project. So, so I just continue just to be honored to be in this role to, to help uh, lead this project forward. And uh, so really some good stuff uh, in front of us, behind us. We still have a lot of work uh, to, to do but from a Beltline Trail perspective, we absolutely see uh, 2030 uh, as the completion date. Th there is a scenario even, Rose, that we believe that we might be able to finish uh, even before the, the end of 2030. Well, I noticed you said from a Beltline Trail completion. Is that, is that for I mean, you said that specifically for that portion because someone listening says, well, Tell me approximately how much of this trail has been completed at this point. 75%, 80%, what's left to do? We know that the west side portion of the trail officially opened this, uh, what, last week I think it was? Is that true? Yeah, that, that was the, the west side connector trail. And so that, that was a really interesting opportunity for us. So, so that west side connector trail of the Beltline will be an opportunity for literally the Beltline to connect into downtown Atlanta. Uh, so that was a partnership with the PATH Foundation, Atlanta Beltline Partnership to make that happen. Uh, but you may remember roughly two and a half years ago, uh, the Beltline was able to acquire uh, a significant piece of, of land that allows the Beltline from the West Side Trail to connect into downtown Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And so we opened officially segments one and two uh, of that part of the, the Beltline, uh, again, about two weeks ago. And so really excited about that, just providing that connectivity. But just from a ratio perspective and what we've done, so when we describe the Beltline and the 22-mile loop, mm -hmm. uh, we have completed roughly seven miles of mainline Beltline trail. And, uh, and so we have roughly another 15 miles to complete uh, by the end of 2030. And you feel confident that's going to happen? I'm pretty confident, Rose, that that's going to happen again. <laughs> that's there, a slow answer, a scenario that we. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, I, I, I honestly feel confident that there is a scenario, Rose, I think we will complete even before uh, the end of 2030. That, that's how good I feel about it. There is a really good plan in place to, to make that happen. Let's talk about that, because does that confidence come from the fact that now in terms of funding with this special service district, uh, that that's why you have more confidence in it now? There was reports that the Beltline was there was no money coming in or money was running out. You want to clear all this up for our listeners in terms of where you stand right now with being able to have the funding in place throughout 2030 and what this special service district is all about. Sure. Sure, sure. So, you know, before the special survey, and I, I have to, to really give a, a nod to city council and again, with the support of the mayor, getting the special service district advance, you know, roughly two weeks ago. Uh, if you had asked me, you know, the same question before the SSD vote, I would tell you 
at the, the Beltline Trail, the 22-mile loop, we would not have finished by the end of 2030. And so now with the SSD in place, uh, we have, for the first time ever, clear line of sight to getting the Beltline Trail, the 22-mile loop, uh, completed by 2030 or, or before uh, 2030. And so th this is game-changing uh, for us. So we, we anticipate $100 million from the Beltline SSD, $100 million from my budget, and then also $100 million from the philanthropic community su to support the rest of the build-out. Th this is, again, this is game-changing uh, for us. And this is going to be another one of those pieces when the historians write about the development of the city of Atlanta, that significant vote is going to be a part of that conversation. And I imagine the historians will also write that, listen, there was an increase in property taxes for certain dwellings, commercial and, and multifamily properties near the Beltline path. Um, you have concerns that that might impact the now look let's be fair we're talking about if a property appraised at a million dollars would pay an additional tax per year correct that Clyde? that's that's correct okay do you have any concerns that's that, that correct okay do you have concerns of this having an impact on small businesses along the way as well or or anyone along along this this path that says well you know property tax is going to increase maybe not for all but for some That is correct. And so I would tell you, you know, a tax in general, you know, that that is not the, uh, the most uh, um, fun way to to get anything done. You know, who wants to pay uh, extra taxes? But this whole SSD uh, conversation was one that was born uh, from uh, a lot of the property owners saying, like, Clyde, when is the Beltline going to get to our part of town? And because right now, you know, we're making progress, but you'll see a half mile here, half mile there. And, and again, a survey that was done under my predecessor, you know, provided some really good information. And it suggested that, the, you know, over 80 percent of the people thought the Beltline was a great project. It was worthy of public funding. Uh, but we had two blemishes underneath that, uh, that survey. The, the first was. You know, make sure you're getting in front of, of affordable housing. Mm -hmm. And the second blemish there was the, the perception that it takes so long to, to build the Beltline. And so, so that perception was then pushed by the property owner to say, what can we do to help uh, get the Beltline you know, fully completed? And you told and them so we, we're going to raise your property SSD, tax. And they said, oh, okay. You know, for, for the most part, people were willing to, for the for the amount of taxes that they would pay and the benefit that they would receive, they just thought the return on investment uh, was well worth uh, the cost that they would pay. Because mm -hmm. you, you have examples of properties, uh, businesses in, mm -hmm. in this SSD that would pay roughly, you know, an, an additional nineteen dollars a month mm -hmm. is for for some of those uh, property tax increases, and then you have. Uh, bigger organizations like Amley, you know, their property taxes are going to increase, you know, somewhere around thirty thousand dollars a month. And so, so just from from an equity perspective, it, it is balanced. Sure. And uh, and so for the smaller businesses, uh, for for the smaller property owners, it is sized 
for for their value and for, for the larger property owners its size for for their value as well. Now, Clyde, is there more land that you all need to acquire? Because I was reading about some uh, talks to buy maybe about 31 acres near Bankhead, that that community. Uh, give us the latest on that. Yeah, so so that uh, if you think about the Beltline loop, so we roughly control uh, about uh, 80% of the land that we need to, to use to co- close the entire uh, Beltline loop. So as we advance this project, we do have uh, acquisitions that we need to to make uh, to complete the the 22 mile loop. So that that is a part of the process, you know, from an acquisition perspective and things that you probably have read about. You may remember earlier this year, we secured a site uh, in Buckhead and in that site, in partnership with Wells Fargo and the Beltline Partnership, uh, that is going to be a site for for housing affordability. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also may have read uh, late 2020, we secured a nine acre site from the state of Georgia, and that will be another significant site for housing affordability and job creation. And so, so from an acquisition perspective, that is really important to us because we want to create these additional nodes around the 22 mile loop mm-hmm. that will hope will help us to push some of our promises to community from a job creation perspective and an affordable housing uh, perspective as well. Clyde, before we wrap up, let's talk about light rail. How likely will light rail be part of Atlanta's Beltline? It it is absolutely um, going to, to happen. So you may remember the voters in late 2016 uh, advance a measure that's going to generate uh, over $3 billion uh, for for transit uh, within the city of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And, and almost a, a billion of those dollars are going to be dedicated to, to Beltline uh, transit. And so we continue to work with, uh, with MARTA and the city of Atlanta to advance that. And uh, so it is absolutely still a part of our DNA. It's an important piece. Uh, of the Beltline vision, and so it is absolutely a part of, of what we're going to to advance. It's a part of it, but can you take that a little further? Because I receive emails, and people have asked me, "And where are you going to put it? How will light rail actually work on the Beltline?" It's crowded as it is. As one someone emailed me, "Where where in the world are you going to put? How will this work?" Yeah, so we actually have enough corridors. If you think about the the width of the Beltline and the corridor that we actually uh, control, so it, it is uh, as wide as a hundred uh, feet, you know, from from either side. So you actually have uh, definitely enough room to advance uh, light rail in the corridor. Uh, the Beltline Trail itself is roughly 14 feet wide. Mm-hmm. And so, again, if you have 80 to 100 feet, you definitely have uh, space for uh, for a light rail uh, car uh, in the in the corridor. And it would it would include the entire 22 mile loop. Is that what you're saying? That that is correct. That is correct. I can't that wait is, to see this, also- Clyde, because I got to be honest, I, I'm trying to paint the picture in my mind. And it's. It's kind of hard, but yeah, I trust absolutely. you. I, I no, guess it, it was. Remember, yeah, it, remember it was hard for people to even imagine a fourteen foot wide, <laughs> wide path uh, in the back of their their business. And you know, let's be 
honest, there were people in the early days to say, hey, I don't want people, you know, walking behind my business. And you rewind or fast forward to today, you see a lot of those businesses that have, you know, switched their front door to yeah, the belt line. Yeah. Because so, so again, it was hard for people to imagine that it got proved out. And I think they'll do the same thing with transit as well. I want to give you an opportunity to really take the time in the two minutes, three minutes we have here to talk about this affordable housing piece. Um, because we hear, I mean, and Clyde, you know this, we've right. had this this conversation. People right. say, oh, yeah, there's going to be affordable housing. You say it, and then all of a sudden affordable housing, depending on whom you ask and where it's located, you know, $2,200 a month for one bedroom is not affordable for a lot of people. What does this affordable piece look like for you? Yeah, th- this is something, again, you know, over the last 30 months, we have been very focused on and being consistent with, with the mayor's uh, one Atlanta plan. And, uh, and so those examples that I talked about a little bit earlier, as far as acquiring sites. Mm-hmm. So what we are trying to do is position the city of Atlanta to be successful on the affordable housing uh, front from a long-term perspective. And so when I mentioned the acquisition of the site uh, in Buckhead, or when I mentioned the acquisition of the site in Oakland City, Adair Park area, what that is going to allow us to do, Rose, is have deeper and long-term, possibly uh, permanent affordability uh, in key Beltline neighborhoods. And so, so folks that are not well-versed in the affordable housing speak, this, this is a, cre- a key piece. And so when we talk about 80% of area median income, you know, clearly the need is to go deeper. So meaning, 60% of AMI and mm-hmm. 50% of AMI and below. And if you look at our pipeline right now, the majority of the units that we have in our pipeline, which is roughly about 900 uh, affordable units, the majority of those are at 60% uh, of AMI and below. And then when you control the land, when you own the land, then you can dictate if that is going to be for 20 years, 30 years, mm-hmm. 40 years, or perhaps for forever in, per- in perpetuity. And so what we're doing is setting up a really strong foundation that is going to, again, exact uh, affordable housing uh, along the belt line. And again, and controlling the land is the key part of that. Is there any is there a need for any more business development through through your lens on the belt line? Maybe on the west side, I imagine. It, it is. And, and that is a growing department within our organization. It's economic development. So mm-hmm. we want to make sure that we are propping up uh, our small business community because we want them to grow specifically on the, the belt line. And this SSD mechanism is going to allow us to have uh, additional funds to support our small business community. So we're excited about that piece. All right. I can't wait to get back out there with you and walk the Beltline. Atlanta Beltline President and CEO Clyde Higgs, as always, I appreciate you taking the time. Keep us posted and we'll stay on top of this. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Rose. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. He rides a bike on the Beltline, don't you, Kevin? I think so. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And, of course, Closer Look weeknights now at 7 p.m. We're moving on up like George and Wheezy. 
as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. That's right. Closer Look now at 7 p.m. Again, our rebroadcast that starts Monday, followed by 1A. Then, of course, our friends over at City Lights and then Terry Cross. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.